It is a delight to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. One of the goals um, by the end of February is to get to the end of this book, which is a little challenging. So we're, we're taking large sections and highlighting some significant themes. And this morning, we'll be highlighting a theme in, second, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 13, in regard to how Paul lives in light of the gospel. So I'll be reading with, beginning with verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy." Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we would ask at this time that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word so that we might not only hear your word, and understand your word, but that we might be transformed by it so that we might live in light of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What exactly is the gospel? There's a simple answer to that. Gospel means good news. Good news about the death, resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus. But as I was growing up, one of the, the aspects I thought the gospel was, first and foremost, was my response. I thought it was very personal, and it is. But the first way I looked at it was that 
the gospel is my faith and repentance. That I believe, I trust, and that's part of the gospel. I, I did not, at a young age, separate my response of the gospel from the gospel itself. The gospel was bound up with my experience. But in Scripture, the gospel is, first of all, good news, which means it's news. In other words, it's a historically based event. The gospel is something that happened in history and took place irregardless of our response. And that event, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that inaugurates a new kingdom, a new world. And it's good for us as we embrace it. And so the gospel has multiple dimensions to it. It has that dimension that's for me because it's about my sin and it's about my shame and it's about my struggles and it's about my pain. It's about all of those things. But it's also good news for the world because Jesus is remaking this place, this broken place, this place that is suffering from the fall of Adam. And for the world, that ties the gospel into that announcement Jesus gave at at the beginning of his ministry that the kingdom of God is at hand, the reign and rule of God. So the gospel changes everything. It doesn't just address your sin. It addresses everything that's wrong with this world. There's a quote at the beginning of your bulletin from Tim Keller. And Tim Keller is one of those preachers uh, in our day and time that has highlighted this aspect of the gospel. After going through a period of time in church history, I think, where the gospel was seen as personal evangelism, we've now come upon a time in, in the history of the church where we're seeing a broader view of the gospel. And Keller, in one of his books, says this, most of our problems in life come from a lack of proper orientation to the gospel. Now get that. He says most of our problems in life come from a lack of a proper orientation to the gospel. Pathologies in the church and sinful patterns in our individual lives ultimately stem from a failure to think through the deep implications of the gospel and grasp and believe the gospel through and through. Put positively, the gospel transforms our hearts and our thinking and changes our approaches to absolutely everything. Now, Keller's not alone in saying this. Martin Luther himself said this in the Protestant Reformation when he was commenting on Galatians 2.14 about the gospel. He said, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. And that passage in Galatians has an interesting aspect to it. You might be familiar with it in Galatians 2. Galatians is one of those early books that Paul wrote, letters that Paul wrote. And Paul and Peter get into a fight about the Galatian church. They get into a conflict. Peter evidently was not living in the freedom of the gospel the way Paul thought he should. And when some others from Jerusalem showed up, Peter backed away from some of the Gentiles. And his 
table fellowship, we might say. In other words, let's say he's sitting at a table enjoying a barbecue sandwich, and all of a sudden people from Jerusalem show up, and you're not supposed to eat pork, and Peter's like, I need to step away from this table and not associate with you guys. I mean, something to the effect of that, where you withdraw from the fellowship of a community. And Paul, when he confronts Peter in Galatians 2.14, puts down a very powerful principle for the Christian life. When he deals with Peter's pride, he says Peter was not living in line with the truth of the gospel. Galatians 2.14. That there is a way in which when you embrace Christ and trust him, it's not just that you trust him to forgive your sins, but you live the rest of your life working out what that means. And so Peter very early on, gets rebuked by Paul because Peter is not living in line with the gospel. So what we want to do this morning is look at the way Paul is living in 1 Thessalonians, in this ministry to the Thessalonian church, and see how Paul is living in line with the gospel. And that's why the title of the sermon is Living in Light of the Gospel. An attempt to live your life in light of what the gospel means. Of this good news that Jesus came and died and how it changes the other aspects of your life. Now part of the difficulties in staying the course with finishing this book by the end of February is that this is probably two or three sermons in one. Um, If I would have broken it up just for your interest, I would have connected... The sermon from last week that we looked at about union with Christ and the way Paul talks about in Christ and how that union with Christ is connected to that Old Testament word we call the covenant. The covenant in the Old Testament where God made a a, a relational binding agreement with his people that forms a community and then that covenant has people in it who love each other. In other words, God loves us and then we love each other and and we're called to love God. That covenantal dynamic is the environment in which we live out our life together. And then tied both of those into what we're going to see this morning with the gospel. So if you hear me say in the covenant, what I mean by that is in this community of grace community, you're according to scripture, covenantally bound to God and to each other. And in that covenant, you have a relationship with each other. You have faith, a common faith in Jesus. You have a common worship together. You have a reciprocating love where you love one another. I mean, that's the whole essence of what a community does. It's one anothering. It's loving one another in the various places you find yourself, in sickness and flu at season, when you're helping each other, when you're cooking meals for each other, when you're serving each other and helping each other in the nursery and in the crime room and in Sunday school rooms, and when someone steps in and fills in for someone else, that's all covenantal love. And so what we're going to see with Paul is Paul has those things in the back of his mind. Paul lives out of those realities. And he makes choices and decisions based on that notion of the gospel and the covenant here in this passage in 1 Thessalonians. 
So let me remind you of the background here. Acts 17 is the story from Luke about Paul planting this church. And when he planted the church, it created an uproar in Thessalonica. And some of the Christians were taken into custody or thrown into jail. And the Christians in Thessalonica realized that Paul and Silas and Timothy had to leave town in order to keep peace and allow the church a measure of freedom to, go, to grow. So the missionaries, Paul and Timothy and Silas, in the middle of the night, were torn away, Paul says in verse 17. But since we were torn away for you, from you, brothers, for a short time. So Paul, his experience in this is he's been torn away from this church and Paul leaves Thessalonica and goes to Berea. If you remember from Acts, Berea is the uh, church that Paul says they were more noble than the Thessalon- some of the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures diligently. But then the same thing happened in Berea. So Paul leaves Berea and then he goes to Athens. And in Acts 17, Athens is that place that is the epitome of the Greek philosophical world. And it's that story where Paul's walking around Athens and he stumbles upon these these idols everywhere and there's one to the unknown God. And then Paul ends up in front of the philosophical committee proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. That's the background. According to Paul here, he struggled deeply with leaving the Thessalonian church. He, he, he was worried about their faith. Look at his language here. Not only does he say in verse 17 he was torn away from them, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. But Paul says at the end of verse 18, Satan hindered us. Don't know what that means, but the doors kept closing and Paul could not get back to them. And he even says, and here's that covenantal community, one another in love. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul's words here reveal a deep love for the congregation. But there's something else here in his actions that reveal how deep that love goes and how he lives in light of the gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith so that, uh, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. Now, Paul was facing a struggle. As the church planner missionary who's now moved on to Athens, he's looking back at this church and he's worried that the words that he gives in this section over and over indicate he is worried that these Christians are going to lose hope, that they are not going to continue to remain faithful and and continue to believe on Jesus and that church plant might not make it. And so Paul is struggling to get back, but he can't. And so the question becomes, now here's how we would apply this very practically, I think, to our life. How is he going to show his love to them when he can't get there? For whatever is the case, he cannot make it back to Thessalonica. He can't get back to the church that he loves and show his love to the people. 
So how will he demonstrate this love? How will he show his, the depth of his love to these people? This whole section is describing the way in which Paul lives out that reality of showing his love. He sends Timothy. Now this is, to me, in seeing this, is astounding. Because we have to pause and consider Paul's choices and think about why he sent Timothy. The sending of Timothy is a deep sacrifice on the part of Paul. In looking at this sacrificial act by Paul, it's not simply that Paul's a wise leader making plans for the church plan. This decision by Paul in allowing Timothy to go back and minister to the Christians in in Thessalonica is causing a great deal of sacrifice and pain on Paul's behalf. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent you Timothy. So the first thing about this action is that Paul is willing to be left alone in Athens. In the choice to send Timothy back to minister to this church, Paul is willing to be left alone. Now, we can read right past that and not think much about it, but... When I preached on this the first time, I thought, there's no way I'd want to be left alone in Athens. We just planted this church in Thessalonica. We got ran out of town. We end up in Berea, and now we're in Athens, the heart of the philosophical world. And I'm going to lose Timothy. I'm going to, I'm going to stay by myself in Athens and send Timothy back. Paul is at the center of arts and learning and philosophy, home to Plato's Academy, perhaps the birthplace of democracy in Athens. And Athens is hostile to the gospel, a city full of idolatry that provoked Paul's spirit and led to the confrontation with the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17. And Paul is willing to be left alone in that city. I I went to Russia... um, on a mission trip, oh, wow, almost 20, 18 years ago or so. Ah, that's a different life. It just hit me. That's like, oh my, that's longer back than what I thought that was. Some time ago, I went to Russia. And the friend that I was with, I was probably 19 or 20. The friend that I was with was an experienced pastor and had been to Russia several times. When we went, we ended up without a translator. We were one translator short for the, like, four groups that we had. And I'll never forget, he, he had me with him, and he made the decision to go without a translator. Now, that's two of us. An older established minister, old enough to be my father, and I was with him. And I'm watching this decision and thinking, we don't need to go out in Russia without a translator. What are you thinking? And so we end up with a couple of youth workers from a Russian church, and the girl, um, the wife of the main youth pastor, had been studying English. So she became kind of a default translator for us. And it was one thing after another that we had to overcome. I can't imagine being left in that city by myself. 
without him. And yet Paul makes the sacrifice to be left alone. He not only is willing to be left alone in this hostile environment, but he's giving up a co-worker, a ministerial partner. How often it is in the case of ministry, whether you're a pastor or whether you're heading up a committee or you're leading something in the church, that it's so helpful when you have somebody right beside you, isn't it? And, and you can feel very, it's a very difficult experience when you don't. So this is the other side of the sacrifice. Being alone is one thing, but in that choice, he lost a co-worker. Now, Paul could have rationalized this and said, I think the gospel would work better in Athens if I had Timothy beside me. But he doesn't. He instead chooses to send Timothy back. But there's one more thing to this sacrifice. Not only is he willing to be left alone, not only is he giving up a co-worker in the gospel, but did you see how Paul described Timothy in verse 2? We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, back to you. He calls Timothy a brother. Now, I don't think that's just Paul throwing away a term the way we say brother or sister. Timothy is a bit more than that. Paul's relationship with Timothy goes deeper than that. Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith. And the bond between them is more than co-workers. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 calls Timothy my true child in the faith. The depth of their relationship causes us to realize the depth of Paul's sacrifice. In Paul's mind, no one else is qualified to go back to Thessalonica because no one else has the spirit of Paul more than Timothy. And so if Paul can't go, Paul will send his closest companion, his true son in the faith. Now, that's what I want you to see in the level of Paul's sacrifice. We need to put ourselves in Paul's shoes, if you will, in order to see the sacrifice from another perspective. And think about what would happen if Paul actually went back to visit the church. Even though he was hindered, if Paul actually went back, if it were possible to Paul to go back, he says numerous times in this passage how much they encourage him. If Paul could have gone back, it would have been a great mutual encouraging moment where he's encouraged by their faith and they're encouraged by his faith and they feel better about the church plant and then he can go out and minister somewhere else. But that's not what happens. Paul stays in Athens and sends Timothy back to receive that joy. And so there are levels of sacrifice all around in this story. If I were working through this situation, the first thing I think I would have done after I went to Berea is I would have tried to circle back around to Thessalonica. And if I couldn't, I probably would have just chalked it up to bad timing and kept Timothy with me and kept going and think, oh, it will be okay. God's in control and he'll make sure that church works it out. We have other things to do. But the depth of Paul's love for those people is that he wanted Timothy to go back to encourage them. He did not have to send Timothy. He could have kept Timothy with him. And so in reading through this, that's when it hit me. 
Paul chooses to live a different way than I do. Paul chooses to make sacrifices that I don't think I would make. And this is not just one kind of off choice. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians with me. Just back a few pages. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, around verse 19. Paul does this. This is, this is why I'm making a big deal out of this passage and why I'm circling back around to show you how this is tied to the gospel. Paul does this over and over in his letters. And anytime the Apostle Paul has a pattern in his life, I think we should back up and go, what's he doing this for? Why does this keep happening? So look at verse 19, Philippians 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Well, there it is again. He's trying to get Timothy back to Philippi so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him to you just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, this story in Philippians and now Thessalonians is not just an occasional story. If you pause and look at Paul's ministry, you will see Paul constantly making this kind of choice to send Timothy back to give something to a congregation. So there's a couple of components to this action that Paul's doing. In sending Timothy back, Paul is losing something. Paul is making a conscious choice to lose a fellow coworker, a true son in the faith. Paul is letting go of something. He's giving up one of his greatest assets in the ministry at this point to send them back, to send Timothy back to Thessalonians in order to encourage them. Paul's words in Philippi in Philippians, I have no one like him. He's a son to me. The depth of this for me is that it's almost as if Paul lives his life and looks around and says, where can I show the greatest sacrifice for these people? Now, what would possess Paul to do that? Why would Paul live his life that way? And that's why I say, I think as this unfolds, you see an example of what it means to live in light of the gospel. Living in light of the gospel means, first of all, Paul has clearly highlighted for them after they've come to faith that one of the first things they'll face is suffering. If you haven't noticed already, suffering is a theme in this book because it's one of the themes in the Christian life. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Notice Paul's words about suffering here. If you look back, um, he wanted to come to him, 
Uh, he, He was worried about them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith so that no one may be moved by these afflictions. Part of living in light of the gospel is acknowledging there will be afflictions in life as a Christian. That you will face suffering. I've gone through different stages of my life where even though I stood up in a pulpit and told people that they need to expect this, in my younger days I really didn't think that I'd face that. And then something happens. The death of a loved one, a crisis in your marriage, a problem with the kids, and you're like, what happened? And yet the Bible over and over talks about the pain and suffering of this world. So Paul says he does not want them to be moved by the afflictions. And he goes so far at the end of verse 3. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. You yourselves know that we were destined for this. As Christians who are identified with Jesus, it is part of our destiny, our providential destiny to face these sufferings. And when we face them, to bear them as Jesus did without bitterness but with love. That is a hard pill to swallow whenever that takes place in your life. And in Paul's case, he plants a church, he gets beat, he he goes through all kinds of suffering, he ends up in Athens, and you think at some point he's going to go, okay, I'm going to take a breath here, and Timothy and I are going to sit here and encourage each other. But he doesn't. He turns right around and sends Timothy away from him back to this church. And so in my mind, I... This is what I think living in light of the gospel means. Not only do you know that suffering is a component of it, but that when you make your choices, you choose sacrificially to love. You make those kind of choices. I will confess to you that when I make my choices, most of the time my mind is planning and scheming at how I can get what I want. How can I make this easier for me? How can I work this out? Do you have that problem or is that really only me? And it seems that Paul confronts this head on. And he seems to turn it on his head. And we live in a world that's constantly telling us to think about ourselves and our own needs. And we hold on to people that bring us joy and happiness. And Paul seems to let them go. To go serve others and to love others. Paul's actions here, when you try to see what it means to live in light of the gospel, you have to ask this question. If he's making this kind of sacrifice, if he's sacrificially loving them by sending Timothy, what's the opposite of that? And the opposite of that, the sin would be obsessiveness, and manipulation, self-obsessiveness and manipulation and control. I think that's at the core of my problem. (laughs) To try to control my situation, to work this out for me, or when I'm 
feeling a little better for my family or for other people. And yet Paul makes the opposite choice. Don't neglect the significance of this issue. That sin in our hearts is bound up with this sense of possessiveness. And the gospel is at work to break that pattern. Let me ask you this question. How many marriages have been destroyed because of this type of possessiveness? How many friendships have come apart because of that? And then is it any wonder that Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? You will read through all of Paul's letters and the overwhelming command is give yourself up and love. Where's Paul getting this? Where's this notion of sacrifice coming from? Well, it comes from the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We shouldn't be surprised that Paul looks around. It's almost as if Paul lives his life and looks around and says, what is the most loving thing I can do for them? What is the one thing I could do that would demonstrate the most amount of love? I'll send my son in the faith. And they'll know I I stayed alone in Athens. I chose to stay away so I didn't create more problems in that church. But I sent the one person that means more to me than anything else. You see the gospel pattern? It's the same rationale that God did. God the Father looks at this situation and he says, what is the one thing I can do to demonstrate my love? What is the one thing I can do to give them more than anything else they could have? And he sends his son. That's the logic in Romans 8. If God gave us his son and his son died for us, What's he going to withhold from you? Don't let the momentary suffering that you're going through distract from the great gift. Because there's a purpose and a design. And you can see here in this passage that sacrificial dynamic. Paul, as he he goes on in verse 4, he says, For when we were with you, we were telling you that you were going to suffer these afflictions just as it's come to pass. For this reason, verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So when he's concerned about them and concerned about their faith, he now, verse 6, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and your love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul, in sending Timothy back, accomplishes multiple aspects of ministry, but the one core aspect in his decision-making, it seems to me, and it doesn't matter what epistle we're looking at, it doesn't matter what letter it is, there is an undergirding Notion. There's an undergirding theology. There's an undergirding view of life that Paul chooses to live in light of the gospel. And at its core, what that means is when he looks to love someone, he loves them by giving them the best he could give them. And sometimes that's not himself. Sometimes it's Timothy. 
And that's what we are called to do. In living in light of the gospel, the source of this sacrificial life comes from the gospel itself. Paul highlights that in verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. You see, Paul's resting in God's power and providence there. He can't get there, but he's praying that God will direct his way. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. There's that mutual loving as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Once you understand the gospel, once you understand the depth and the breadth of the gospel, everything changes. And part of the goal of the Christian life and Christian spirituality, and this is one example, one example where Paul chooses to send Timothy. We could go through the whole book and show you multiple times where Paul's choices are living in light of the gospel. And so the apostle Paul calls us to understand that the gospel causes that kind of overall change in your perspective of life so that as you live your life and as you love other people, they see the love of Christ in you. I pray that that would be our goal and I pray that the Holy Spirit would move us to live our lives in such a way that we can manifest God's love, God's sacrificial love in the world in that manner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Paul's letters, you have given us an insight into the dynamics of how he thinks and lives and works. And we would pray that in our lives, we would make choices that would not only honor you, but that would show the depth of the love of Jesus Christ to other people. We would pray that our love would be so deep that others would sense that that love comes from a place that is beyond this world. And we would ask that as we live that way, that people would see Jesus through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.